Welcome to Bar Fights with attorney and advocate Sarah Klein. Taking on issues that matter and advocating for legal, cultural, and political change everywhere in order to protect children and vulnerable adults. Joining the conversation are survivors, advocates, lawyers, media personalities, athletes, celebrities, authors, wellness aficionados, and many more. Because bringing real justice takes a team of experts who care. Now, leading the fight is your host, Sarah Klein. Hey, you guys, welcome back to Bar Fights in 2024. I hope everybody had an amazing holiday season. We are back and we are cooking with gas. And I am absolutely thrilled today um, to have this particular guest kicking off 2024 with me. Um, He's not just an incredible advocate and a survivor of unspeakable abuse, but he's also a friend of mine and we get to work together in some really cool ways, um, which we'll talk about later in the show. We're going to do two parts because this guest is so incredible. So tune in, not just uh, for today's conversation, but also next week, you'll hear more from my guests. So without further ado, let me introduce this incredible human. He is the author of a book that we're going to be talking about and diving into today, which is called Chosen, a memoir of stolen boyhood. Um, it won all kinds of amazing awards and has gotten so many accolades. Um, the 2022 National Jewish Book Award. Award, which is just so incredible. He's also the author of a book called Next of Kin, My Conversations with Chimpanzees, a Los Angeles Times Best Book of the Year. And he's done so many cool things. Um, since 1983, he's worked with the Natural Resources Defense Council, um, and he serves as an ambassador to an organization that is near and dear to my heart uh, called Child USA. You guys have heard us talk about it on the show before. It is the leading nonprofit think tank fighting for the civil rights of children. And he's also sits on a board with me um, uh, called Child U.S. Advocacy. So um, my guest is named Stephen Mills. We're going to dive into Chosen today. Stephen, my dear friend, welcome to Bar Fights. Thank you. It's so great to be here, Sarah. So great to be here. I've been wanting to have you on um, since you shared a copy of Chosen with me. Um, I was just rereading some chapters before we hopped on today, and and I was so moved, um, in particular, by the last several chapters of this book, and we're going to talk about it today. Um, But first, set the stage for us. Why? You have this incredible story, obviously. It's been such a journey um, for you, and you put it into writing something so many of us um, haven't done or can't do. Why did you decide to write Chosen? Well, I decided a long time ago. It was really, at this point, more than 35 years ago. And the idea was put into my head by an FBI agent in 1987. Uh, It was the last of several meetings I had with the FBI. At the time, I was trying to stop the perpetrator who had abused me and several of my friends in a Jewish summer camp. And he was 
still abusing kids in a different camp uh, in a different state, in Pennsylvania, actually. And um, folks can read the book to find out what happened, but it was a complete fail by the FBI and the Pittsburgh DA. Um, less, A little bit less surprising in retrospect and what we all know from what the FBI did in the gymnast case, right, just a couple of years ago. And so, um, but this one FBI agent, said to me, you know, you're a writer, someone really needs to write about this um, just to raise awareness and help change things. And, uh, you know, I took that to heart, but man, it was hard to do. And I tried so many times over the decades to do it and I could get so far and no further. And honestly, it was, it caused me more psychic emotional pain than I was equipped to handle at the time. It just took many, many more years of um, therapy and meditation and all sorts of things for me to open up enough space around the events that I could actually in 2018 sit down and confidently say, okay, I'm ready. I can do this. And, and when that happened, it just kind of poured out of me. I mean, I didn't stop writing for 18 months and I wound up with something that's twice as long as the book you see now. Um, yeah. And um, I'm glad I waited because I think my perspective now I'm in my sixties is much different than it would have been in my thirties. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And like you mentioned, you know, even just the last five or six years um, has really changed the scope of how, we think about these issues that we've seen some themes really come out in terms of how difficult it is to stop a predator, which is something that you came up against. And I want to talk about that in a little bit, but, um, but I think your book is so important because while your story is unique to you, it's there's, I could see so, so many things in there that I'm like, oh yeah, me too. You know, I went down that path of trying to numb. I had these struggles with my mom, you know, too. And right. Like it's, there's just yeah. so many things in, in your story that were so relatable for me. And it also themes that I see when I talk to, to my clients, um, right. so your book, covers a long period of time really it, it covers six different decades um can you give us an overview for those listeners that haven't yet read the book um just an overview of of your journey if you will yeah of course um the book it's divided into three parts the first part is called predation and uh it's of course the story of um, the abuse itself. And that began right after my bar mitzvah at age 13. I was from a working class Jewish family in New York. My father had died when I was um, four years old, which is relevant because the predator exploited that and tended to prey on boys who didn't have a father or came from troubled homes and really had these needs, you know, to be filled for a, a father figure. And um, uh, I went back to camp that summer when I was 13. That was the third time back at uh, Camp LFOs, which was owned by UGA Federation of New York. And it was run by the YMHA, the Young Men's Hebrew Association of the Bronx. And um, I had had fantastic time at camp for two summers, but this third summer, uh, there was a new director uh, 
well, he'd been there the summer before, but I'd had no interaction with him. He was like God, you know, he strode around the camp and I had absolutely no reason to interact with him. But suddenly this summer I was 13, he sort of started paying unusual attention to me, pulled me out of the dining hall, took me on a walk in the woods. And of course, in retrospect, the, all the classic um, moves of of grooming. He took me under his wing. He was in a lot of ways like playing the role of a therapist. And he was a social worker, a very esteemed social worker uh, and sort of leader and pioneer in Jewish summer camping in the 1960s. And, you know, he asked me all about my family problems and my challenges at home. And no adult had ever paid that kind of attention to me. I was it was I was over the moon, you know, to get this kind of attention and helped me to think about things. And he took his sweet time that went on for the duration of the summer. It wasn't until that fall uh, that he called up my house and asked my mother's permission to take me up to camp in the off season, just him and me. And that's where the abuse happened. Um, in the camp infirmary, uh, the first place I was sexually assaulted. And, um, you know, one of the reasons I really wanted to write this book was to convey just, you know, the word sexual abuse doesn't begin to convey the experience to a child. For me, it was an out-of-body, near-death experience. And mm. in many ways, I spent the next decades trying to get back into my body. That's how dissociated I was. Uh, and I, I take the reader through that in the book. And I think that's super important because so many survivors have had that experience and the aftershocks last a lifetime. I'm still feeling them. I mean, I'm much more, of course, I have all the tools for coping now, but once your nervous system gets blown out in that way, it never reverts to what it was the day before, right? So the, the, the rest of part one is uh, the the remainder of those two years when he was sexually assaulting me and trafficking me mm. across state lines out of the country to the Bahamas. This is relevant because of, uh, as we'll talk a little bit about my current case under the Child Victims Act in New York State. And then part two is um, when I, it's called flight and it discusses what happens when I learned in my early 20s that he was abusing boys at a different Jewish summer camp in another state in Illinois. And uh, that sort of, that was a lightning bolt. Uh, sort of in that moment, I I had never understood what had happened to me. I didn't have the language. I didn't have the word sexual abuse. I understood it. I understood he was doing it to other kids. And I knew I had to try to stop him. I confronted him. That led nowhere, but it led me off a cliff because suddenly everything I had managed to hold down in my psyche just exploded out of yeah. me. And I was at that point entering a PhD program in economics at the University of Wisconsin. And within weeks, I just went off the rails and down the rabbit hole. I was suddenly committing petty crime and shooting drugs and trying to kill myself. And it was so, uh, so diametrically opposed to this, you know, good straight A student I had been that it was shocking, you know, to everyone around me. Uh, and that was the beginning of a four or five year period of um, unraveling, you know, and just so that's the story of flight, which took me 
all the way around the world, actually. Uh, and I wound up having a nervous breakdown in a refugee camp in Southeast Asia, of all places. And uh, in part three, called Reckoning, is when I just by dumb luck found my way to a psychiatrist uh, in 1982, who after a, a merry-go-round of doctors couldn't figure out what the hell was wrong with me. I had all these physical symptoms, but they were stumped. And I spent one session with the psychiatrist and he said, you've got shell shock with the, mm. which at the time was the, you know, today we call it PTSD, but then it was shell shock. And then I got into some intensive psychotherapy. Uh, and over the years, you know, finally surfaced the abuse in therapy for the first time, which was really the beginning of starting to look at it. Um, I met the woman who had become my wife who, and for the first time, despite having had many, you know, sort of serial, serious girlfriends, I'd never felt safe enough to disclose. So finding a, a relationship where I could disclose and, and feel trust, you know, and feel love and give love and receive love. That was, that was a whole new frontier. Uh, and in by 1986, I felt stable enough and sort of aware enough of what had happened that I made up my mind. I've got to stop this guy because I discovered he was had moved on to yet another Jewish summer camp. This Shocking. one. Yeah, right. <laughs> run by the JCC, the Jewish Community Center of Pittsburgh. And um, I did what I'd always fantasized about doing, but didn't have the courage and couldn't get past the shame, uh, which was to reach out to my friend's from my summer camp when I was a kid and see if anyone knew anything. And in yet another non-shocking shocker, I thought there's no way I'm gonna find someone else that this happened to, right? The first call led me to five other victims. Wow. So that's how pervasive it was. And uh, I took statements of, from victims and witnesses to the FBI and the Pittsburgh DA, as I mentioned before, and, and I ran smack into our cultural resistance to prosecute, prosecuting, you know, sex predators. So, um, you know, flash forward to um, today, the perpetrator died in the early 90s. Um, I filed suit under the Child Victims Act in New York. Uh, to finally, after a half century, uh, to hold his employers accountable because they were really the first links in this chain of complicity and silence that let this guy go from camp to camp to camp for almost you know three decades and with access to thousands of kids. There's so much to unpack here. Um, I want to start with the word you used was unraveling and I love that word. I, I went through the same thing in a different version, right? Your version was I'm going to commit crimes and do a bunch of drugs. Mine was I'm never going to leave my house and hole up there and lock myself in for seven years, you know, and it, it's this mm -hmm. sort of steady decline. I can't tell you how much I relate to that sense of, I know there's something wrong, but I don't know what, I can't put my finger on it. Everybody around you noticing it. Um, so it, it, it's something I want the survivors listening 
to this to really hear whatever your version of an unraveling is it's it this is common this is normal this is what happens to us when we shove it down shove it down shove it down shove it down or in my case don't even identify it right um so so you know i hear that and I think some people would say, wow, you went on to commit crimes and get in trouble and do all these drugs. It's like, no, of course you did. Right. Um, were you? Yeah, because I was trying to you and I had different versions of trying to, to in my mind, what it is to erase ourselves. Oh. Yeah, desperately trying to erase the person this happened to. I know for me, I had such guilt and such shame and such self-hatred. For so many years, I mean, from the moment it happened when I was 13, the self-hatred was intense. Yeah. And, you know, for boys and men, there's an added layer there of shame. 100%. Because, you know, culturally, we have such contempt for weakness in boys and men. And so to be a sexual victim, we still have a big problem as a culture looking at this. God knows we have a problem looking at it with women, too, any kind of sexual violence. But with men, there's a whole nother aspect because there's so much homophobia. There's so much fear of what does that say about me? So my need to erase myself was just profound. And for me, the way I was, I was going to, you know, one time after I was, you know, um, actually I wasn't arrested. I was arrested a couple of times. But one time I ripped off a store and I, I told my friend and he said, he looked at me like I was nuts. And he said, are you looking to get punished? I mean, it was clear that I was, I was desperately trying to get myself locked up. You know, I just, and when that didn't work, I just tried to kill myself. That seemed a more direct way to, so, yeah. you know, erase. But so many survivors I talked to had their own ways of trying to do this, you know. And the flip side of that is, and the hopeful side, I guess, is that when you can finally gain some insight into what happened to you um, and, face the truth of it and feel the truth of it that's really the beginning of healing and you know when and that's when that intense pressure to unravel to erase to disappear um starts going away and the opposite thing happens uh you begin to recall and um piece back together you know the innocent lovable kid who was there all along Yep. And it's possible, right? It's possible. absolutely. Um, that's so beautifully said and so beautifully put. Um, the, another part in the book that was shocking, not shocking to me. And I, I come up against this every day and I still cannot wrap my mind around it is how hard it was for you to get law enforcement involved, to get them to pay attention, to get anybody to do anything. And like I said, I see it every day. That's why I have a job, right? But but it's still reading the book, you're like, no, that couldn't have happened. No, it, it is so shocking to me. Um, talk to me a little bit about that. And, and I also want to touch on in, in a, a part in the book that brought me to tears and brings me to tears every time I read it, this phone call that you had with your perpetrator mm -hmm. in the book where you're trying to get a confession from him and you're trying to really to get him to take some responsibility. So um, 
Yeah, I mean, on you know, on the law enforcement side, boy, what an education I got. Uh, I, I was so naive. I thought, okay, I'm just, I'm gonna, uh, I'm just gonna do this my own little investigation and get these statements. And I mean, I spent the better part of two years investigating uh, the perpetrator, whose name was Daniel Farinella. Uh, his background, his history, his, you know, different victims, witnesses, getting statements, which was so hard. It's hard now, but back then getting statements from male victims, um, you know, as, as one FBI agent said to me, it's, it's in a scene in the book, she said, you know, boys who have been abused are tougher to crack than serial killers. I mean, you can try all the tricks and you can't get boys or men to acknowledge what happened to them you know that's how profound the resistance is and i did that you know and i thought okay i'm just going to turn these over and they'll do their jobs and that's not what happened and so you know part of me and at the time it was crazy making you know my wife and i would sit there saying are we the crazy ones yeah no one sees this guy is actively working with children, undoubtedly abusing them. I knew, you know, victims at the camp he was at at that time. I understood that my testimony and the testimony of my friends didn't count because the statute of limitations had run out. So they had to find current victims. And to his credit, the head of the sex assault squad of the P Pittsburgh Police Department, he wanted to immediately investigate and start talking to kids and build a case. And the DA overruled him and said his line was, you know, if someone's abusing kids in my county, you know, we got to get them out, you know, as soon as possible. So basically it's like, let's pass the problem on to the next town, the next county, else. you know? Yeah. And it was, it, it, I still have such a problem um, grasping it. I want to believe that part of it was where this culture was uh, 35 years ago, but sometimes I wonder since, you know, we see this replaying today, you know, and, and that makes me feel we are so deeply uncomfortable with this issue on so many levels, um, of the abuse of kids that it is so much easier to turn away or try to find a quick fix if you're law enforcement. And if you're an institution, in this case, the JCC of Pittsburgh, they, you know, let, according to the DA, they let the guy, you know, go quietly on his terms. The community never found out they'd been a child predator there for years um, with access to their kids. Um, and, and that's where we get into this uh, sort of mutual interest of institutions with perpetrators, you know, the shared interest. And I think this is so important for people to understand it's so hard to report abuse. And even when it is reported, institutions and predators share an interest of not having it go public. The institution yep. doesn't want a PR disaster and the yep. perpetrator obviously does not want to get prosecuted. And so, uh, you know, there's, there's institutions pass the trash as it's known in the trade, you know, onto the next institution, um, or they just extend and pretend that nothing happened for a while until it's untenable. Um, in this case, uh, he, he, he didn't leave immediately. I later, I found out from the FBI, he was there for at least three months while this institution knew he had this, 
history of abusing children. So, um, you know, and, and in terms of the in terms of Farinella, the, the perpetrator, he called me. It was probably it was six weeks after I alerted the Pittsburgh DA and the FBI. I get a phone call uh, from Farinella at home and um, I recorded the call. And, and so what's in the book is uh, a transcript of most of the call. Um, and uh, I recorded the call because, number one, I was convinced he was going to kill me. Mm. I wasn't alone in that thought. Other male, other my friends who signed statements warned me he's going to come after you. Um, and so I thought, well, if he's going to kill me, at least I better leave some evidence. Um, and I wanted to get a confession out of him on the off chance that, you know, we were ever able to bring a, you know, a criminal or civil case. And um, that call is kind of remarkable because a lot of therapists who read the book say to me, you know, you don't realize how unusual that is. So many survivors fantasize confronting um, the abuser and don't get that opportunity or are too afraid, understandably, to have that opportunity. It's not like I chose it. <laughs> he called me and I answered the phone and recorded it. But um, for me, it was a turning point because I really got to um, tell him straight to his face what he had done to me and others and to catch him out in his lies which he was you know he was a, a master manipulator and you see him uh hear him or read him in the book in this conversation trying every trick in his toolbox to escape responsibility for what yeah. he had done and to deny what he had done um of course i had confronted him eight years earlier and told him I knew what he was up to and that he needed to stop. And he had promised me he would, and he didn't. And so he was kind of like a cornered animal. And yeah. um, so uh, I'm so glad I got that opportunity to tell him straight up uh, and that I recorded it. And hopefully that tape uh, is pivotal to the case that I'm fighting right now, you know, in yeah. New York. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I can't stress enough, you guys, this book, Chosen, a Memoir of Stolen Boyhood. Um, it is so important, so beautifully done. And we're going to come back in part two. Stay tuned next week. Author Stephen Mills, my friend, my fellow advocate, fellow survivor. And we're going to find out uh, the battle that Stephen is currently fighting to hold the enablers in this story of abuse accountable. See you guys next week. Thanks for tuning in to Bar Fights. Thank you for listening to Bar Fights with attorney Sarah Klein, taking on issues that matter. Please check out our website at barfightspodcast.com, Instagram at barfightspodcast, or Twitter at barfights underscore pod. 
for the latest show updates and archives.